to a privilege, and it is a privilege, to be parents, await the moment when our offspring utters his or her first words. Did my eight-month-old just say computer? Probably not. For in any language, and I'm something of a linguist as well as even less of a theologian, the first syllables a child utters are usually simple to articulate and are linked to the closest of relationships. Mama, Papa, Dada. We have no record of the first syllables that Jesus ever spoke. Jesus, the Son of Mary, the Son of God. But we have no reason to suppose that they were any different from the first syllables of other children in the Aramaic-speaking community in which he grew up, in Nazareth. Did he say, Emma, to Mary, which is Aramaic for mother? More interestingly, did he address Joseph as Abba, Father, Daddy? We may speculate, but we have no idea whatsoever. In fact, we have no record at all of anything Jesus said until he reached the age of 30, with one exception. In Luke's Gospel account, and we're starting a series next Sunday evening, in Luke's Gospel, beginning at chapter 3, and this is a kind of introduction for those who are here today, we find the first recorded words of Jesus. Here they are, addressed to Mary, particularly, and to Joseph. Why were you searching for me, he said? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, if you know Luke's Gospel, in the opening verses of his Gospel, Luke, a very careful historian, tells us that he gathered evidence for his account of the life of Jesus from, Luke 1, 1 1-4, those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. So we may assume, as do most scholars, that Luke's information in this Gospel about the early life of Jesus came from an eyewitness, and almost certainly that eyewitness was Mary, who Luke tells us on a couple of occasions treasured all these things about Jesus in her heart. What is really surprising then, and you may never have thought about this, is that following the birth of Jesus and the birth narratives that Luke relates, we have only this one saying and this one incident surrounding it for the first 30 years of his life. Wouldn't we like to know so much more? And here's Luke talking to Mary and saying, Mary, tell me about the early life of Jesus. Of course, later writers embellished on this, and if you read the pseudo-gospel accounts that came much later, you have these fanciful stories about Jesus playing with his friends, making clay pigeons, and then turning them into real pigeons, much to their astonishment. If you've ever read them, they're absolutely, clearly spurious. But we have this one story. 
which Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does record and is significant, like all Scripture, and it therefore merits our close attention. I'm somewhat embarrassed, therefore, to admit that in over 40 years of preaching, and I discovered to my horror on the internet, 741 sermons that you can download from the chapel website. Don't do it, by the way. Um, I have never spoken on this story and this passage before, which the NIV entitles The Boy Jesus in the Temple. And so what I want to do today, therefore, is to rectify that. And to focus on this incident, and particularly to home in on this first saying of Jesus. And on this first Sunday of 2007, I want to draw from it some New Year resolutions. So, the important thing, as always, is that you turn to your Bibles and Luke chapter 2. If you haven't got the Bible open in front of you, or there aren't Bibles around, just turn and ask people to pass one to you. It's page 1029. And I want to be as simple as possible. So I have three points. I want to look at the time, the place, and finally the priority, which we see in the life of the boy Jesus. First of all, the time. That is the time when this event occurred. And I want to suggest to you that this is a critical point in the life of Jesus. This is a critical point in the life of Jesus. Uh, Luke uses various terms to describe the development of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 16, he describes him as a baby. Chapter 2, verse 40, he describes him as a child. And now, in verse 43, he describes him as a boy. He is a 12-year-old boy. Uh, these are the normal stages of growth of any child. They're part of the full humanity of Jesus. Again, you may not have thought about it, but if you read some of the myths of other world religions, you'll find that saviors suddenly appeared on the scene, fully grown. But Jesus went through all the normal growth processes. So, up till this point, till the age of 12, he has lived in Nazareth for most of his life, after the sojourn in Egypt early on. He's lived under the guardianship of Mary and Joseph. Uh, Luke describes him, of course, as his parents. Uh, later on, he describes Joseph as his father. Not because he's denying the virgin birth that he's just described in the previous chapter, but that's the term, simple legal term that people would have understood. If, in fact, it's a mark of authenticity. If Luke was trying to doctor the documents, he would have avoided saying it. Now, it's clear that Mary and Joseph were good and godly parents. They took their spiritual responsibilities clearly. If you were a Jew, and you still are a Jew, by God's grace, then you take seriously the great creed of the Jewish faith. It's called the Shema from the first word, which means here in Hebrew. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you this day are to be upon your hearts. Now, that's your responsibility, but you are to impress them upon your children. People say the most silly things today, don't they? They say, I'm not going to bring up my children in any religion at all. I'm just going to let them make up their own minds. So what will happen? You'll make no impression upon them. But if you know the Lord, you impress His Word upon your children. How do you do it? You stand up and give them sermons every morning? 
well, you may need to occasionally, but um, he says, you talk about them when you sit at your home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. In other words, it's a natural part of your life together. Now, Mary and Joseph have done this for Jesus for 12 years. But now, there comes a point in the life of every child when he or she becomes morally accountable, morally responsible. In Hebrew, it's described as knowing good from evil, or idiomatically, they talk about knowing your right hand from your left hand. And for a Jewish boy, this significantly arises at the age of 13, when a boy becomes a bar mitzvah, literally means a son of the commandment. He becomes a full member of the covenant community in his own right. So, here's Jesus. Up till this age, he has been under the guardianship of his parents, of Mary and Joseph, but now he is preparing for entry into the covenant community in his own right. That's why it's a crucial moment in his life. That's why I think Luke records the story here. In fact, this may be the reason why Joseph and Mary take him with them up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Again, if you know the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, there were three great festivals which Jews were expected to observe every year. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, Exodus 23, you'll find that in. Uh, to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate with your fellow Israelites was a costly business. It took time and effort. It's also, with an occupying force, the Romans in these days, quite a difficult thing to do. So many families would choose only one festival, and the festival that everyone chose, or the most popular one, was Passover, because Passover was the celebration of the deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And now living under slavery in Rome, you can imagine why it was such a popular festival. And while we're told, if you look at the text, that Mary and Joseph, verse 41, attended every year, it may be, and it's not absolutely clear, it may be that this is the first time Jesus has gone up to Passover in his life. I think probably it is. Whatever the case, this is the final preparation year for 12-year-old Jesus before next year he will attend in his own right as a member of God's covenant people. Now the question for every Jewish boy is, will he go through this as a mere formality? Or will he prepare for it seriously? And as with all the temptations and tests that Jesus faces in his humanity, it is no foregone conclusion. That's why it's a crucial point in his life. Now let me speak to those of you here, and I'm glad Bible class and most of the older, younger people are in here. Many of you, like I had, had the privilege of growing up in a Christian family. Your mum and dad have dragged you along to Charlotte Chapel every week. Sometimes happily, other times reluctantly. And you've had to do it because they're responsible for you. You ain't got any choice at this point. So you either come happily or kicking and screaming, whatever the case may be. And I know enough of families to know that it's not always uniform. Oh, every week's the same. But, young people, there comes a point in your life where you've got to decide for yourself whether you're going to follow what your parents have taught you or whether you're going to go your own way. You may not be able to break away immediately, but you may be able to come along. I remember I did as an early teenager, sit there 
staring intently at the pulpit. In fact, my father was one of the leads in the church. People used to say, your son really listens so well to the word. Well, they didn't know that my son was replaying the football match from the day before. And I had a facility to look intently at the preacher. And he thought I was listening very intently. And some of you are doing that now, I expect. But there comes a point as there came for me at the age of 14 when I was faced with a choice whether I was going to follow Christ or not. Let me encourage you parents by saying if you've done all you can and none of us, I've never met any parents who at the end of parenting their children say I did the best possible job and I was a fantastic parent. Most of us say we could have done a lot better job. But if you've done that it's down to your children to make a choice. It may not be 12. People matured earlier in those days. Maybe 13, 14, 15, 16. But there comes an age when you've got to decide for yourself, young people. You made to make a choice for yourself. You can reject all that you've been taught or you can simply go through the motions and say, as soon as I'm 16, I'm out of here. Or as soon as I'm on my own and go to college. Some of you are students and maybe you're here this morning first sin of the year so that when mum and dad phone up and say what did you do on Sunday I went to Charlotte Chapel and that's it for this year or you can consciously willingly gladly follow Jesus wholeheartedly you'll know in this church and we're, we're blessed with so many young children we give thanks for our children. We call it dedication. But really all we're doing is giving thanks to God for them. We pray for them. We pray for their parents. And some of you, I did that. I've been here 15 years. And some of you are 14, 15. You probably won't remember, but you're in this pulpit. And we pray for you. We commit you to the Lord. But there comes a point when you have to decide. Now, we don't practice bar mitzvah in this church. Because we're not Jewish. We're Christians. What do we do? What if a young person at an age of understanding, says, I want to follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. The symbol that you do it is called baptism. You say, I'm going to immerse myself completely in following Jesus. And baptism is a wonderful symbol of being immersed completely in the death of Jesus. And as you come out of the water, the resurrection of Jesus is the start of a new life. So let me challenge the young people here. But let me challenge some of you who are now in your 20s and you've never made this full commitment. I know it's only symbolic. But every step of obedience, we'll see as we come to Luke, Jesus started his ministry by being baptized. So maybe for some of you, 2007, here's your resolution. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, and this is the year I'm going to follow him and tell the world I'm his follower by being baptized. It's a disappointment to me that we don't baptize more people in Charlotte Chapel than we do. I can't understand people's reluctance sometimes, but my ambition, which I've mentioned several times, is to leave the baptismal pool open, put some chlorine in every week and just keep going. But sadly, we don't baptize that many people. There should be more. Some of you are in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and you've never really stood up and been counted. It's time to stand up and make a stand. You were taught by your parents, what are you going to do with your own life? Are you going to drift along? Go through the motions? Or follow? So, Here's my first point, and the time is going. Let's keep moving. This is a critical point in the life of Jesus. A test which he passed. Now we come to the place. And what I want to say about this is, what this reveals is, a crucial person in the life of Jesus. 
What do I mean by that? Well, you need to follow me and stay with me. It's every person's worst nightmare, isn't it? A missing child. The festival is over. Joseph and Mary, who've come down from Jerusalem, Nazareth, to Jerusalem, make their long way and long journey back north. As was the custom, relatives and friends from the same neighborhood would travel together in caravan for security and for company. The tradition normally was that women and children went in the front, men and boys brought up the rear. And at the end of each day, you stopped and made camp, and there were probably wonderful occasions. So it may have been that Mary assumed that Jesus, who was on the verge of... He's still a child, but he's also a boy. Maybe Mary thinks, Jesus is back with Joseph in the rear. And Joseph thinks, no, Jesus is with Mary and her party in the front. And it's only when they stop and make camp that they begin to search and discover he's not there at all. So they hurry back to Jerusalem. And after three days, when it says the third day, one day out, one day back, one day searching, they discover him in the temple courts. There were great spacious canopies around Herod's temple where people could meet and discuss the law of God. And there he is with the teachers of the law, as the practice was, not just listening, but speaking and answering. And they're amazed at his understanding and his answers, verse 47. And when Mary and Joseph see him there, they're also amazed. Astonished, Luke says, an even stronger word. And they're clearly upset by the anxiety that he's caused them. Now, notice what Luke's account tells us and what the story tells us about the kind of relationships that are involved here. There are two fathers in the story. Did you notice that? Mary asks, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Surely her concern, her complaint are understandable. If Jesus were any normal child. But he is no ordinary child. They know that. It's no ordinary child whose birth is heralded by angels who were visited by wise men from the east. And that's why Jesus is also amazed. He's not being rude to his mother. He's surprised. His gentle answer to his mother says, now notice, why were you searching for me, he said. Where did you expect me to be? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Yes, Mary and Joseph, acting in loco parentis, Joseph is his father, But these human relationships, close though they may be, are secondary to the most crucial relationship of all with God his Father. Leon Morris comments, the first recorded words of the Messiah are then a recognition of his unique relationship to God and of the necessity of being in the Father's house. It is this relationship which now takes priority at this crucial point in his life. If you grew up with the authorised version of the Bible like I did, you'll know how the verse is translated. The authorised version, it says, Jesus says, Wist ye not, which is kind of old English, that I must be about my father's business. The literal Greek is, in my father's, or at my father's. We we use the same idiom in English, don't we? Say to somebody, uh, I'll catch you up this evening. Where will you be? And you say, I'll be at my brother's. It's the same idiom that Jesus is using here in Greek idiom, saying, didn't you know that had to be in my father's, at my father's place? So the NIV house is probably correct. For Mary and Joseph were not asking what he was doing, they were asking where he was, and there he was. Uh, But it may not amount to too much difference, really. 
In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Luke, which I recommend to you as we go into Luke's Gospel by Michael Wilcox, he says this, To be in my father's house really amounts to the same thing as to be about my father's business. Jesus says, where my father is, where he centers activity, there I am always to be found as well. So the crucial person in the life of Jesus is not Mary and Joseph, important though they are, the most crucial person is God his Father. A relationship with God his Father is crucial for Jesus. Michael Wilcox again writes, So the first recorded words of Jesus are a statement about himself and a claim to be in a relationship between himself and God different from and deeper than anything that had ever been known before. And it is this relationship, uh, as Michael Wilcox goes on to write, which is also crucial for us. Furthermore, it is a relationship with the Father into which Jesus is going to bring all others who are prepared to put their faith in God through him. This claim that Jesus had to be intimate with the Father, which caused so much offense to the Jewish religious leaders. John, early on in his Gospel, in chapter 5, tells us this is one of the reasons why they conspired to kill him right back then. Because I quote John 5.18, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He claimed to have an intimate relationship with God like that of a father, as that of a father. Now, the most important person for us, therefore, is God the Father and his son Jesus Christ, who can bring us into that relationship with him to say when I was growing up, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men might become sons of God. And so therefore, the most crucial thing for us is our response to Jesus. John, in his opening chapter of his Gospel, says we can either reject him like his people did. He says, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Or we can receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, this is the most important thing in any year. is that Jesus came into the world to bring you into an intimate relationship with God the Father. And when you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit, you talk to God in an intimate way you respond to him as Abba, Father. The Apostle Paul, writing in Galatians 4, says, because you are sons, and that means male and female, with all the privileges that sons had, are now included in male and female, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So, the second thing I want to ask you is, do you have that crucial relationship with God as Father? One that transcends even the best of human fathers you may have experienced. And one that compensates for even the worst of fathers or the non-fathers that you've experienced. This is the priority. That's why Jesus came into the world, so that we might become his sons and daughters, might be able to call God Abba Father. Do you have that intimate relation with God? Well, 2007 by the year when that becomes a reality for you, when you receive Christ. If so, we're coming to the third and final point, it will lead to a change of priority in your life. 
Notice thirdly the priority. And here we see a compelling purpose in the life of Jesus. Just look again at the verse, this first recorded saying. Jesus says, Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, note the little word, had. It's a little Greek word, only three letters in Greek, and it expresses compulsion, necessity. Somewhere you must be. Something you must do. You see, Jesus could have been in the party travelling back to Nazareth. Mary and Joseph thought he, he should have been there, but Jesus said, no, 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 I have a better appointment. I had to be here in this place. He had a more pressing engagement in the temple in Jerusalem. Why there? Because that was the place where God had chosen up to this point to dwell among his people, to make himself known. And so he wanted to be there to learn all he could about his father and get to know him better in a deeper and more intimate way than ever before. He wanted to be where the Father was. And that priority governs his life from now onwards. As we go through Luke's Gospel, we'll come to this little word, had or must, again and again. Let me just briefly mention some key places. Jesus only says what the Father says, does what the Father wants. He's doing the Father's will. Look to the future now, the ministry of Jesus. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has this amazing impact and people, the people he's ministering to want, him to want to keep him there. They don't want him to leave. But Jesus says, I must, there's the word again, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that was why I was sent. After Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, this key point in his ministry, Jesus then begins to say, the Son of Man must, here's what's necessary, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Further down the road he says, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. I must, I must, I must. And after his death and resurrection, you remember he met with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're totally confused. And he says to them, did not the Christ have to suffer? Must suffer? These things and then enter his glory. And later that evening he appears to his disciples and he says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Now, if we are to follow Jesus, we need to have that same compulsion. I must follow God's will for my life. I must be where the Father is working. This will take priority over everything else. It will be a costly business. That's why Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you must, what? Take up your cross. Him writer says, it is the way the master trod, should not the servant tread its hill. You see, all of us are driven people. We've all got our agendas. You've got your plans for 2007. And I simply ask you, as I ask myself, am I driven to follow the Father's will, or am I going to continue to pursue my own agenda? You see, too often when the Father calls upon us, we have other pressing engagements that take priority. Or, or we can sing about it and we can pretend that we're really following Christ wholeheartedly and you know, never, you never let my heart go astray. You know, Abba Father, let me be, you know, only your will, Lord. It's great on Sunday, but on Monday, when some priority comes calling, what takes priority? Where is your heart? What are you driven to do? So, 
Here's another new resolution. Will 2007 be a year in which you are driven to follow the Father's will? That that's going to take priority. Even over the closest of human relationships. Costly business. Easy to say it, hard to do it. But this may not mean that 2007 will be on the front line of Christian service. For notice, as we really do draw to a conclusion, something you can easily overlook as you come to the end of Luke 2. You remember what Colin spoke to children about? Yes, Jesus followed the Father's will all the way to the cross. For three years, he followed the way to the cross, beginning at the age of 30, Luke tells us in the next chapter. But he also did the Father's will for 18 more years in the home. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, was obedient to them, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. Yeah, we do need a compelling purpose. One that equips us to be, to grow in grace and wisdom and stature with God and men, favor with God and men, before we do. Imagine spending 18 years laboring as a carpenter in an obscure town like Nazareth that no one thought counted for anything in Israel to prepare for three years of ministry. So maybe you need to switch around what I've put on the screen. Doing the Father's will, preparing in the present for service in the future. Great Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon preached on this passage at least two occasions I've discovered, maybe more. This is what he writes, very interesting, about Jesus. So great a lesson he had to teach that he must spend another 18 years learning it fully. What a challenge to those of us who want to save the world before breakfast. So I speak to some people here for whom 2007 may simply be, crucially be, a year of growth. Of steady preparation. And if so, I simply say to you, take heart, you're in good company. So maybe your resolution for 2007 is just to keep going. To be that parent, that worker, that friend. To go to building blocks. To join your fellowship group. To be committed to other Christians. To keep teaching that Sunday school class, the FBI, CID, whatever it may be. To keep handing out hymn books at the door and nobody says to you, gosh, thanks so much for that hymn book. To keep doing the PA system and nobody says anything to you until it doesn't work. To keep doing the PowerPoints on the preparation week by week that I send to these guys and they put them up there and nobody notices. To keep playing the music. To keep serving Christ. Oh, I know we all want to be doing dramatic things for Christ. Maybe 2007 is... It will be different for you. For some of you, maybe the front line, as Rebecca going off to Africa this week. You know, great. It's God's will for her at this time. We're going to pray for her and support her. But there are others of us who will just carry on doing what we've been doing. But we'll keep growing. We'll keep growing. And we'll keep being obedient. You see, his obedience to his parents did not yet conflict with his obedience to the Father's will. 
not for another 18 years. And some of us just need to stick at what we're doing. Now the conclusion, the real, real conclusion. I want to ask you about your New Year resolutions. What are you resolved to do in 2007? James brought up some helpful things on the screen. I've talked about all sorts of other things. My experience in church life is, we all go out the door, nod our heads and say, there are a lot of great things in that that I ought to do, and we don't do any of them. So, here's a suggestion why you've got the blank bit of paper in your bulletin. And you've got an envelope as well. All right. You can simply take this home with you and recycle the envelope and don't waste the paper. All right? Or, first Sunday of 2007, here's a suggestion. Take the piece of paper and maybe even before you leave, because you'll forget it otherwise and you won't do anything. And don't go rushing out. The other people will be in the long queue for coffee as well. Stay behind. That's right. Write down on this bit of paper, my New Year resolution. It should come up on the screen. God willing, with God's help, 2007, I resolve to. And when you've done it, you write it on here, put it in the envelope, and seal it. And you can do two things at this point. You just take it home with you and put it somewhere safe and remind yourself of it through 2007. But I've got a better suggestion. You may not want to do this, and this is not the laws of the Medes and Persians. It's not in Leviticus or anything like that, right? But here's my suggestion. Seal it, write your name and address on it, and as you go out, you'll see the offering box on the stairs. We don't need your money this morning, all right? Put it in the offering boxes with your name and address on. At the end of today... We'll collect them, we'll lock them up in the office safe and we'll post them back to you in May. Okay? You don't have to do it. But it may be helpful for some of us to actually articulate what we plan to do with God's help and by God's will, 2007. Okay, let's pray. I'm going to sing a hymn at the end.